Hey everybody, welcome back to the Way of Ramen podcast. In today's episode, we have a huge guest on the show. I don't even really know how to properly introduce him, so I'm just going to tell you who it is. It's Ramen Lord. Mike Satinover is a ramen god for people in the West trying to create authentic bowls of ramen at home. His recipes that have been published on reddit.com slash r slash ramen have helped thousands of ramen nerds around the world create their first bowls of homemade ramen. Mike is literally a walking encyclopedia when it comes to ramen. His knowledge of ramen history, its techniques, its nuances are unmatched in the U.S., and I would argue that he could even give ramen nerds in Japan a run for their money. In this episode, Mike talks about his love for miso ramen, history of ramen itself, his thoughts on American ramen and shops using pre-made soup stocks, and his thoughts on the evolution of ramen in America. I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did, and I know I'm going to have to have Mike back on the show very soon. So without further ado, here's Mike Satinover, a.k.a. Ramen Lord. Yeah, thanks for doing the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm super jazzed. Love to talk ramen. Love to talk with people who love ramen. So this is cool. Yeah. I haven't done a podcast before, obviously. So uh, we'll see how it goes. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Cool, cool. So I guess let's start off by kind of going into how you got into ramen. I know a little bit about your story. You kind of ended up in Sapporo for a study abroad or something, but if you could mm-hmm. elaborate more about that. Yes. I mean, I, I wish it was like some sort of romantic uh, or complex thing, but essentially, you know, <clears throat> I had eaten ramen occasionally on and off going to like Mitsuwa. I was studying Japanese in high school, so I was familiar with the food and enjoyed it. And of course, you know, as kids, we always eat instant ramen and so that's not really where this tale begins. I guess it really does begin in Sapporo. So I studied Japanese in undergrad and did a study abroad in Hokkaido University in Sapporo. And for those who don't know, miso ramen, a very prevalent style of ramen in Japan currently, is invented in Sapporo in uh, 1955. I won't get into the history of the shop, but it's a pretty fascinating one. Maybe we can talk about that later. But as you can imagine, with a, a cut, uh, a region that has such influence on the landscape of ramen, there's a lot of ramen in the city. I think there's like a thousand shops. It's not as big as Tokyo, obviously. Tokyo is around more like 10,000, but Sapporo has a thousand, and that's a lot for a population of like 3 million people or something, right? It's actually kind of linear. You know, Tokyo has around 30, 10,000, where you kind of scale up and down, you can see. So there's a lot. I mean, I don't even think Chicago has that many restaurants, right, by comparison. So it's a lot of ramen shops. And <clears throat> they mostly do miso ramen, which at the time I liked because it was it's my gateway. It's like the first style that I ate in Chicago or whatever. So I was curious, and I just started to, like, eat it. And it was awesome, obviously. It was just crazy. It's, like, mind-blowing. So as I continued to eat more and more of it, I think you're just addiction grows. You know, I'm kind of an addictive personality in general. And I just started getting crazy into it to the point that like, one, all of my friends knew that I was that guy who ate ramen all the time. And then two, more importantly, uh, I actually like did a study abroad, like independent study on it where I talked to my advisor and I was like, I want to like study the history of this dish in Sapporo and what the current chefs are doing. And so that involved uh, reading a lot of Japanese materials, going to various restaurants and interviewing a lot of these chefs and talking to them about like what they think ramen is like, what the culture of the dish is, what the lineage and history of it is, you know, what it means to them, all these kind of weird nebulous questions. And I think that just further built my appreciation for this, mostly because, you know, I think I had been a cook for a long time, but it was weird to think about 
cooking is sort of being uh, sporadic or potentially uh, not planned. So Sapporo Ramen's history is not one that was carefully constructed or crafted, but really one of kind of necessity in post-war. So, uh, and this is where the story of Miso Ramen begins, right? It's, it's invented in this shop, Ajino Sanpei, in 1955. It's just a shokudo, it's just a diner, but they are making like pork miso soup and one of the patrons hungry for calories in this kind of post-war ridden era is like, give me, give me some noodles, put some noodles in. And that's really how it starts. It's not like a carefully planned, constructed dish. It's not methodical. It's grungy and cheap and fulfilling and calorie laden. And that's really all there is to it. And from that explodes these newer waves that we're seeing. It starts as comfort. And I think that was really fascinating to me as a, as a person who may or may not have wanted to be in the restaurant industry, but certainly was in love with food and cooking. It was just like, how can you take humble origins and expand it out? So I was hooked once I started learning more about the history of it. And uh, you know, sometimes people are like, you know, are you like an anthropologist, like a food anthropologist or like a food scientist? I don't know if I'd go that route, but I think it's important to understand the history of the food that you uh, are fascinated with. And it, it just kept building my knowledge. So when I got back, uh, I was hooked and there was nowhere. So what are you going to do? You got to make it, right? Like that's all there was to it. So I think the rest is history from that, you know, but it started in Sapporo. There's no question. It began just because you, know, you eat it and it was awesome. <laughs> that's really all there's to it. You know? So what year was that? Like, cause you've been making that ramen was... for a long time. So what year was that? That first experience yeah. was in Sapporo? I never made ramen until 2010 and I studied abroad from 2009 to 2010. Okay. So 2009, 2010, eating it like every day, bam, bam. <laughs> somehow my college metabolism, not, not making me hate myself, just yeah, eating yeah. all the time, right? Maybe not all the time. I think I in total ate maybe at a hundred different restaurants, give or take, over that year of time. That's crazy. So it's definitely like pulling back. No, you know, it's not even that crazy. Like in my last trip to Sapporo, which was in just a couple months ago, I had 20, yeah. 20, 20 bowls of ramen in six days. That's crazy. That's, <laughs> That's pretty nuts. crazy. That's nuts. Yeah. That's like, a lot of lard. Dude, and it's, yeah, it's Sapporo ramen. So for those who don't know, Sapporo style ramen is miso, but miso goes through several phases throughout its its kind of history. The first one is Ajino Sanpei. They just like put miso into a pork. It's like tonju basically, right? It's like pork miso soup that has noodles in it. And then it's evolved a little bit, but that's the origins. The second wave is really this kind of slightly elevated, slightly hardier style, which is called Jun Sumike or Sumideke. It's essentially invented by this shop, which later becomes known as Sumide. And it's characterized by uh, a, a large layer of super hot lard across the top, which traps in the heat, but it's, and it's scalding hot, crazy hot and super fatty. And I'm addicted to it. And it was like, I didn't realize how important this restaurant was, but it was probably the first restaurant that I went to where I was like, oh, I get it. Like, I get why this dish is awesome. So <clears throat> it's like, you eat a lot of that and you are not feeling so hot, definitely. This is not like a clean Tokyo show you. Yeah. Though, I love those too, you know, so many. That's cool. Um, so yeah, if eating like, <laughs> eating that all the time, can't recommend. 20 bowls in uh -huh. six days, not good, dude. I think one a day is like my max these days. <laughs> that's a lot for me. So it's a you, lot. Yeah. So yeah. you came back to America and that's what started you your journey of making ramen. You know, so can we talk about your first bowls of ramen that you ever made? Because, you know, I kind of talked about it with oh, David. Man. My first they're, bowls were terrible. Dude, of course. They're so bad. They're so bad. 
awful. I think, I don't think my ramen, I made ramen, so I was making ramen in 2010, and I don't think I got good at it until maybe 2016. I think for a solid <laughs> six years, six years I was banging these bowls out, and people were just like nicely saying, this is good, and in reality, they were just terrible. All of them were bad. You know, like, I didn't understand the differences in ingredient selection. I certainly didn't understand the nuance of how you would layer flavor in a dish. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand gelatin's importance, but also it's uh, kind of complexity. And so like the necessity of having the right amount of gelatin, I think a lot of American cooks in general are just like gelatin, hit it hard, yeah. like get as much richness as possible. And then you try and drink it and you're like, this is disgusting. And yeah. you're, my dumb brain in 2010 didn't realize this nuance. So you're just, you're constantly like, for six years, I just did not have these fundamentals. And I guess like eventually things started to click, especially as more information came out and as I just made more and more of it. But for a solid six years, it was just like awful. Like, <laughs> and, and especially the first handful, I would say like the first dozen or so attempts, you know, I was just making whatever crappy recipes I could find online, starting with uh -huh. the really bad English ones, which are uh -huh. terrible. And yeah. Then, uh, kind of mitigating up and like looking at more Japanese sources, which were also at the time terrible. So, mm -hmm. and like, you know, kind of weirdly non-specific, which is not helpful for me. I found that the more specific I got, the more regimented in my process I got, the better my and more consistent my results can be, which is very ramen-esque in the modern era. Right? <laughs> like I'm sure you know, but like everything's grammed out. Everything's yeah. like, this is a 35 milliliter ladle. And that's how much tar you put in. Yeah, it's like yeah. exactly that amount. And if you're off by a milliliter, it's going to be terrible. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's all, so it's regiment. interesting watching like the old, like, you know, people that are like, have been making ramen for like 40 years. You see them on YouTube sometimes. Their, their process of making ramen where they're just kind of splashing things into a bowl or it's not really measured. Yeah. And then you see like yeah. these new style of chefs where they're measuring to the milliliter. I think about that a lot, actually. Yeah. Like in Tokyo in April, I went on another ramen binging tour. And one of the most memorable shops I went to was Tantante, which specializes in wonton soba. They're a super old shop, I think from the 70s. And it shows, right? Like these guys are old school bomb cooks who just like are very eager to um, do everything without measurement. <laughs> and I... I like as an outsider looking at it and thinking as a regimented person, I could not wrap my brain around it. You know, nothing was pre-measured. Everything was just like estimated in the bowl, like the tare, the oil, the MSG, the cook times on the noodles, the cook times on the wontons, the ratios of everything. It's just like, just a cook just doing it with like whatever thing he could get one liquid or one comp component into the other. Yeah. But the dish was delicious and like, it also had one of the best noodle folds I've ever seen. So like whatever they were doing was working exceptionally well. Right. Like I think that cooking uh, is both a balance of intuition and science. And it took me a while to realize the fundamentals of the dish in order to have the intuition. If you're a Tantan taste since the seventies, you have that intuition because you've been making that wonton soba for 40 uh -huh. years or whatever. You know what the soup looks like with the right amount of tare. Yeah. You don't need to, you don't need to let That's true. Right. It's, it's the balance of all that. So 
you know, it takes practice. <laughs> it took practice and six years of practice for me, I think. But after that, I, I think I started picking it up and started did, getting better. Did you have like a culinary background prior to starting to make ramen or did you? Only in the sense that like in high school, I wanted to be a cook mm -hmm. and I worked as a, as a stage at an Italian restaurant for like a year, which, you know, you may or may not like that, right? Like <laughs> being a stage at a, at a restaurant for a year is tough. You're not getting paid anything. You, your chef might dislike you or might treat you like garbage. You know, every restaurant's different and some chefs are nicer than others. So you just kind of have to have the balance. For me, it wasn't a particularly awesome experience. So I took a little bit of a break from it, but um, you know, I've sort of circumvented that now. I don't have any formal training though, no. Oh, and I don't have like any culinary training otherwise, just the school of hard knocks, if you will. I think a lot of ramen cooks in America don't have formal training or around the world even. Is that, you it think seems so? Like, I think it's what I, I'm, from what I've seen on Instagram, the people that are talking to me a lot, a lot of them are not in the, in the restaurant business. I mean, the ones that, and the, the irony of it all mm -hmm. is the ones that aren't in the restaurant business seem to be putting out bowls that are a lot nicer looking than the well, restaurant Well, so you, the thing that you have to understand is that like the more you ratchet up the volume on any dish, the harder it is to do it consistently beautifully. Yeah. Like if I make a bowl of miso ramen in my kitchen, of course, it's going to yeah. look insane. It's yeah. going to be awesome. And it's going to be, it's going to look in amazing. Right. I'll know exactly how to char it. I'll know mm -hmm. exactly how long to cook the noodle. I'll be super focused on every component. Mm -hmm. The plating might take a little bit longer, but it's going to look more beautiful. When I'm at a pop-up and I got a hundred of those to make, you know that like some shortcuts might happen. Yeah, you don't want yeah. them to, but you don't want them to, but time pressure is very intense. So like it's critical to focus on each one as if you're making each individual one. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, if you're a chef, you know, volume is key in the ramen business. So it's hard to, it's really hard yeah. to. So that's why I don't think you see as many. I think you see a lot of these ramen chefs like, Money is important, so go, go, go. Yeah, I'm yeah. Like, ugh, didn't look so hot. The bowl <laughs> is a little sloppy. I mean, I've been called out for it, you know. Uh, Somebody posted a photo of one of my bowls to the subreddit. And yeah. Then another guy was like, man, this looks terrible. I was oh, like, yikes. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yikes. You know, it happens to all of us. The goal is just to be disciplined, I think, uh -huh. um, while recognizing that you still have to do it. But it is harder. The more you make, the more you have to make in a day, the harder it is to make every single one. Like Definitely, yeah. Yeah. So how did you get, so you started off with miso ramen. How did you, or what made you start to experiment with other styles of ramen? Because on the subreddit, which we've mentioned, you know, where you're ramen lord and your recipes are linked in the sidebar. How did you get yeah. into those other styles of ramen where you just, is that just I, a natural progression? It's just or? A, it was like a natural curiosity, right? Like you do, once you nail one, let's say you're, a, you're, you're really into ramen and the, you finally feel like you nail it. Like you finally feel like, okay, this is ramen. It has the core components of ramen. It feels like ramen. It is delicious. It's craveable. Immediately, me being the curious guy, I am. I was just like, well, I've got to learn the other styles. In, in Sapporo, and this is true in general in Japan, most, uh, most restaurants delineate by tare. So mm -hmm. three tare approach is super common in Sapporo. Where you have base soup and three different tares. So, uh, Even Ajino Sampe still is doing a shio and a shoyu in addition to their miso. Oh. I can't imagine they sell any of them. Yeah, I'm yeah. Sure they sell 99% miso, <laughs> but they always have like a shoyu and, and potentially a shio uh -huh. as well. And that's very common in Sapporo. So it's not like I had never had any of the other styles. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not so weird that I would just uh, limit myself to one particular food, even if it is my favorite. 
I wanted to branch out. So once I felt like I had the miso, it's just like, well, let's keep going. Like, okay, I got one finally. Let's mm-hmm. see if I can learn another one. And so those also sucked for a really long time. <laughs> it's just, I think in the process of learning how to make ramen, I've gotten used to the fact that your first couple attempts are going to be pretty terrible. Oh yeah. Like you just don't, everyone keeps secrets of everything and you don't have a baseline to go from. And, you know, the further away from tasting that food I got, the less of a background I had on what it was supposed to be like. So mm-hmm. it's like you, I got used to being like, man, I'm going to screw this up for sure. <laughs> uh, I think this is the creator. I say this a lot, but this is like the creator's paradox, right? Like as a, it, whenever you try and make something, you have to know that your first attempt at it is going to be, imperfect it would be imprecise uh and and that was kind of addictive to me because you don't have a lot of experiences like that in life where you're like genuinely teaching yourself and learning so Mm. once i started like with a new one i had the same experience over and over again just kind of just like building it on so like right now i'm doing this whole weird thing about bubbles and like trying to figure out (laughs) bubbles and failing so hard like over and over and over again failing so badly and like it's kind of it's kind of addictive and kind of terrible at the same time. Like, I'm not saying I like love to like hate myself, but uh-huh. what I mean is more just like I enjoy the challenge and like the fact that I know I'm still pushing the knowledge and mm-hmm. not just like sitting on my laurels and doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, to me, that challenge is addictive primarily. So once I had that in ramen, it just like just kept going just like okay new style new new thing new noodle technique new new thing right always learning and it just builds right you learn something and then there's more to learn mm-hmm. i think if i ever got to a point where i was like no nah, i'm good i would be i don't know i'd be like kind of depressed honestly like i don't think there's anything in ramen that would get me to that level where i, I would feel, just like, feel like i'm sufficient i feel like that's i think you can find like something to get into with any kind of interest right so like um, I taught myself Japanese over the past five years. And so yeah, like, your Japanese like, is pretty good. I feel like I've heard you on the other podcast. And I'm like, Oh man, I thought he was, I thought you were half or something. Like you actually knew Japanese. No, dude, I, I, I so I'm fourth generation Japanese American. I grew up with okay. no Japanese. My parents mm-hmm. can't speak Japanese. Wow. But, um, just like five years ago, I decided to try to start learning cause it's my heritage. Yeah. So. But he's got like, he's like, man, he's got the pronunciation and everything. It's like, it's pretty good. Yeah, no, dude, I, my Japanese is pretty terrible, but, um, but it's just like, you can keep going down the rabbit hole. So like, you know, you learn the basic things and you're like, oh, I'm going to just study kanji for a year. And so I did yeah. that. And then you can, oh, I'm going to study like these. So I feel like for you, for ramen, it's probably very similar where you can always find like, oh, I'm going to pull on this thread now. I'm going to keep pulling on this yeah, exactly. and see where that leads me, you know? So that's, that's pretty, exactly what it is. Yeah. Definitely. So how did you, so, so, so miso ramen, were, were the first miso ramens you're making actually, the miso ramen that you make now, it's not tonkotsu miso ramen, right? It's It was never tonkotsu miso ramen. Oh, okay. In fact, there's a misconception that miso ramen is typically made with like a tonkotsu mm-hmm. or a python style soup. So yeah. an emulsified soup. That's extremely, it's uncommon. Really? I wouldn't say rare. I wouldn't say rare. But if you go to Sapporo, the vast majority of the shops are using chintan. Really? And they're using pork chintan. Yeah, so Ajino Sanpei does a pork mm-hmm. chintan. Jun Ren and Sumire do a pork chintan. New places like... Um, Saimi, which spun from Sumire, they do Chintan. The super new wave shops who run from Sumire, the Noren Wake places that kind of split off from those, mm-hmm. they all do they all do Chintan. If you do a Tonkotsu miso, you're probably gonna have to tell people it's a Tonkotsu miso. Uh-huh. So like so like Tetsuya, 
is an iconic shot from the 90s and they do a tonko to miso and so uh-huh. it's like tonko to miso it's like python says, miso, right it uh, says okay. like on this on the thing yeah and i think the reason for that is just balance like miso tare is heavy a lot of the time it's uh-huh. got it's often got like neti goma and it's got fat in it and the miso itself is robust and you're adding a lot of miso often to the dish and it's just like that's going to amp up the viscosity of the final soup. Uh-huh. And so, and if you're doing Junren K or Sumire K, you're adding all that lard. So it's richer, more yeah, rich. Yeah. So all that richness, if you were to do it with a tonkotsu, it's like a gut bomb. I think it's super unbalanced. So yeah. chefs, I think inherently know this. And so they're using chintan usually. Cool. cool. Yeah. And that makes sense too, because tonkotsu is from Kyushu all the way on the other side of Japan, you know, like that style. of. Yeah. Like, but tonkotsu. you know, the thing is like, if you track the history of this dish, like, uh-huh. It's true that the Python style comes from Kyushu, and that's mm-hmm. mostly because of like influence from China, uh-huh. these white soups coming from China. But towards the 80s and 90s, everybody's making whatever style they want. Yeah, like, food yeah. tourism is hitting hard. Like people are traveling, people are seeing what they're doing up north and what they're mm-hmm. doing down south. You don't have as much delineation. I mean, the delineation is more in the sense that like stereotypes from the north go south and stereotypes from the south go north and so they're like artificial interpretations of the dish uh-huh. so like the tonkotsus are whiter north than they are south yeah, right? yeah and the yeah. misos and the misos have butter and corn south they never <laughs> have they never have butter and corn in the uh-huh. north right it's like there are stereotypes of the styles um but the reality is like everybody knows like there's no like lack of like well what's this thing i've never seen yeah, this yeah, before. yeah yeah that's really cool never thought about that yeah i mean and it's funny too because then we as americans further stereotype right so like if you look at a tonkotsu from kyushu like a real like badass hole in the wall tonkotsu Uh it's gonna be dirty and kind of ugly and like maybe a little brown (laughs) and and cloudy but like in a sort of murky way like not in like a cream way Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but in america we think of it like milk like it's got to be pristine and white and there's very few places that are doing it that crazy down in kyushu um like and i'm not saying this is like a kyushu expert so like fellas Mm -hmm. who would listen to this please call me out but like (laughs) having seen a lot of these documents of like and, and looked at a lot of ramen that's from Kyushu and heard a lot from people who lived in Kyushu and told me about their Kyushu ramen. It's more about just like the intense porkiness and the viscosity. And it is a little cloudy by definition, but it's never as crazy white as we Americans interpret it or want it to be. That's an American affectation as we, much like with other foods, Uh we take really key characteristics and amplify them Mm -hmm. because they're stereotypes. So the butter and the corn thing is like another example of that. <laughs> so is butter and corn like an American thing or is butter and corn no. like a Tokyo thing? Butter and corn is a tourist thing in Sapporo that's invented by Ajino Tokedai in the uh-huh. 70s as food tourism starts to pick up. So mm. Ajino Tokedai opens a shop just outside of the main train station in Sapporo, Sapporo Eki, Sapporo train station. This is like where everybody goes when they get into the city, they go to Sapporo train station. It's like the main hub of how you get into the city, basically. They open a shop just outside, and to appeal to tourists, they put Hokkaido ingredients on the soup. So that's butter and corn. (laughs) Oh, it's Hokkaido. We're in Hokkaido. Hokkaido is uh, known for those ingredients, like dairy and corn are popular from the region. So they're like, we're Hokkaido food. Like, Mm -hmm. eat us. And then... 
visitors would come in, they'd see us so like, oh, this must be Sapporo ramen. And then they it's like uh, and they'd take Hawaiian it pizza. <laughs> like, oh, Hawaiian pizza. You put pineapples on Hawaiian pizza. Yes, yes, Nobody yes. in Hawaii eats pineapples on pizza. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. It's the same idea, right? Guess, so yes, then yes. it explodes and it's not bad. Like it tastes good. So yeah. it doesn't like go away. It's not just like this awful trend that happens and goes away. So you only really see corn and butter in Sapporo in like the most touristy places. Ah, I see. Like the Yoko Cho's with like the tons of shops that yeah, yeah. are like have you know, three different language menus and like the food halls that have different ones um, or like extremely famous shops that are going to appeal to tourists a lot. So uh-huh. like there's a shop, uh, Sora, which is, which actually has a shop in Las Vegas, but mm-hmm. there's a shop Sora. It's right near this big shopping area called Tanuki Koji. It's like the Tanuki hallway, basically the Tanuki alley. There's just tons of shops and they're just outside and they are a miso shop that puts butter on corn because there's tons of tourists who just flood into that area. So they're just, that's who they're trying to appeal to. If you go to a place like Saini, which is out in the burbs and it's like lauded by Japanese people, mm-hmm. uh, it like hits number one on Tabe Log all the time. It's like uh-huh. the top rated shop in Hokkaido. There's no butter at all. In that. It's not <laughs> even available. It's not uh-huh. available. But it's a miso shop, true, yeah. true, true to God miso shop. And uh, it's just about like, who is the audience of this dish, right? I think, but we pull back, right? We're tourists, we have a limited experience, limited engagement, we see certain Mm -hmm. things, and then that experience influences what we think it's gonna be in the future. It's true of tonkotsu ramen, it's true of skemen, it's true of miso ramen, it's true of shoyu ramen. Everything has characteristics that we pull from and uh, use as like anchoring points, but inherently there's misinterpretation. Sometimes that misinterpretation is good. Sometimes it's not. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think that's a perfect segue to talking about American ramen or the status of, Amer- of yeah. ramen in America. So, so you started a long time ago. What have you seen since you started making ramen in 2010 till almost a decade later now? Like, what have you seen in America when it comes to ramen, like the culture of ramen or like the, what people, you know, oh, eat, eat, what kind of ramen people are eating? I know you just put out that post on Instagram and the subreddit about your bowl well, of American ramen. So think about the cultural characteristics of American dining, mm-hmm. a certain handful that come into the fold when you think about any particular dish, but uh, American palate in general, right? Inherently, we acculturate food, just as Japan acculturated ramen yep. by taking Chinese meat soups and adding soy sauce in the mm-hmm. early 1900s. Mm-hmm. That's how ramen is born. It is an acculturation. It is, a, it is grabbing components from one culture, bringing them in, and then using things that it enjoys to modify it to the local palate. So there's nothing inherently wrong with that. However, I think that there are certain things that detract from the dish in America's ramen landscape that are maybe not ideal. So the couple that come to mind are that Americans love variety, right? Uh-huh. We know that Americans love variety. Choice. They love and choice. America, they love choice, but uh-huh. variety in particular, right? So not just like small versus medium versus That's large, true, yeah. but also like set A, set B, set uh-huh, C, yeah. different experiences, right? We love that. I think the the reason that food halls are so popular and food courts are so popular is a a result of this cultural component Mm -hmm. in society. Similarly, I think Americans love bold, intense flavors. So we are not ones for subtlety often. I think with the exception of, I'm speaking of course in generalizations. So like, this is not uh, me saying that you can't be this way or that it's difficult, that that you may have different tastes, but the vast majority of Americans like bold, intense, rich flavors, big, rich flavors, right? Burgers, pizza, hot dogs, 
barbecue, rich, you know, punchy flavors, uh, often with acidic components and often with spices or other kind of things that build up that rich flavor. So just naturally with those two components, you see that tonkotsu is far and away the most popular mm-hmm. style of ramen in the United States, across the United States. It doesn't matter where you go. And adding spice to ramen is extremely common. So that's like when I made that kind of stereotype American ramen post, it's just like an, an experience of that. And then similarly, Americans love variety. So there's tons of toppings. There's like seven, eight, nine, ten 10 toppings on more ramen because that way you're getting constant new experience with the dish. You're just hitting them all out. Um, I've also noticed that a lot of American ramen has a kind of pickled or sour components. This is extremely rare in Japan, yeah. right? Like beyond rare in Japan but very common in American ramen because Americans like those big punchy flavors uh-huh, part of the uh-huh. dish, right? So you just see the bowl and you can tell like this has American uh, components to it. I mean, there's other things too. We love meat and protein. So mm-hmm. American ramen always has big thick slabs of chashu on it and it's always got an egg, right? Like we yeah. need the egg. In, in my last trip in Sapporo, I had like 20 bowls of ramen and maybe four of them had an egg. Uh-huh much rarer in Japan. It's an add-on. It's something mm-hmm. like you'd request specifically. So there's changes. There are things that we take, but I don't think it's mutually exclusive, right? Like I don't think you, it needs to be a tonkotsu to be appealing to Americans. Uh-huh. I don't think it needs eight toppings to appeal to Americans. Uh-huh. I don't think it needs to be spicy to appeal to Americans. It's just, these are the easy, obvious cultural components of our dining that mm-hmm. can influence the dish itself in that way. And that's why those are the most popular styles. Like mm-hmm. that's just the nature of it. Have you seen any changes as far as like what Americans, you know, want to eat in terms of ramen? Like from when you first started in 2010 till now, have you seen a shifting in the American palate for ramen? Or is it basically tonkotsu all the way through? People still demand that same kind of tonkotsu? Or has it degraded even more? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I I think it's it it fractures, right? So when you first introduce a dish, there's only a handful of ways in which you experience a dish uh-huh. in a given city. So in LA, as an example, tonkosu was really the only game in town for a hot second. So that's mm-hmm. what people were eating. Uh, similarly, in New York, you know, you had Ipudo. Like, that's what they were offering. As the dish becomes more prevalent, more options and capabilities to splinter off emerge. So now you are seeing these more cutting edge places that are doing weird and kind of interesting styles of ramen, taking their own twists and putting spins on it. Some are doing a good job. Some are using those cultural components a little too vigorously. You know, maybe they're doing too many pickles on the dish. It's like, that's a little bizarre. Sometimes they're, you know, pulling and doing other things entirely. So like Mazeman is huge now, right? Becoming super popular. And that hits a lot of like, it hits a lot of that like intense flavors, creamy, rich, decadent, those things that we love while uh, also being easier on kitchens, uh, being more noticeably like other dishes Americans eat frequently like pasta. Mm-hmm. So easier segue for people and uh, having even less rules becomes more creative. So like Nakamura's new restaurant, Niche, does like a smoked salmon and cream cheese mazesoba. It's craziness, bonkers. You'd never see that in Japan, but it's smart and it makes sense cohesively. It's an interesting, thoughtful dish. My friends at 210 Jack are doing like a spicy crab dish with like a beurre blanc. Like these are thoughtful, interesting ideas that kind of change the way in which 
uh, the, the dish can't exist while still understanding the core components of it. Mm-hmm. I think that that's the way in which American ramen is going. You, you will always have a place that's going to serve a spicy tonkotsu. Uh-huh. It's just, there's no, it's just like with any dish, there will be these standards that we assume are, we, are gateways to our access to the dish. But similarly, there will be new people who want to push forward, right? Like, I could just rattle off a bunch of names of people who are doing different stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, like, I mean, the fact that like Keizo Shimamoto was making like 20 different bowls of ramen at one yeah. point in time and like was slammed before he closed yeah. only shows that there is niche opportunity to uh-huh. make unique foods. I don't make a tonkotsu miso, but you know that I sold 260 bowls of ramen in my last yeah. pop-up. You know, like I didn't need to sell a tonkotsu. Mm-hmm. People are more, so people are like more open to it. It's a niche, but it, they're more open to it. I think that um, that's the way I, so to answer your question broadly about where is American ramen going, I think it's just, it's becoming more popular. And so people are doing more interesting, unique stuff. I, mm-hmm. It's not the same as it was 10 years ago where everyone was doing tonkotsu. That's, that's for sure. True. Do you think there's room for like a shoyu ramen to get popular in America? Or do you think yes. that's just like not a match for American 100%. Palettes? Yes. And it's the new wave style. So I've been like a huge advocate of this new wave style, uh-huh. which uh, is just chicken and soy sauce. Like there's nothing else going on in that bowl. Mm-hmm. But that's what makes it really appealing to Americans because soy sauce is a super easy to like uh, appreciate flavor mm-hmm. and Americans love chicken. It's the most produced, it's the most consumed uh, protein in the United States far and away. Uh-huh. Pacing beef, lamb, pork, whatever. We eat tons of chicken in the United States. Mm-hmm. We love chicken in the United States. So a dish that has that as a focal point it's going to kick butt. Like it's going to do awesome. Every time I serve one, people are like, Oh man, this mm-hmm. is crazy. Right. And it's such a contrast from tonkotsu, which is kind of like the right. image of it's most also Americans the have. exact opposite. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's, it's about subtlety and mm-hmm. about nuance. You're using high quality soy sauce with a lot mm-hmm. of complexity. You're using high quality breeds of chicken that have complex and rich, but like uh, distinct flavor as opposed to a tonkotsu, which is not about subtlety, right? It's a fat emulsion with the goal of being like cram as much lard into your belly yeah. as possible. Yeah. <laughs> that's delicious. It's delicious, <laughs> but that is the purpose of it, right? Like that's uh-huh. that's what it delivers. As a, it's not a. I mean, even the cooking method is not subtle, right? Mm-hmm. Like you crank the heat up, yep. you boil it forever. You can't overcook it. You just let it <laughs> yep. go, right? Yep, yep. There's no one's ever been like, oh no, I overcooked the tonkotsu. It's like no, is that is that true? The the origin myth where they like some restaurant was trying to make a chintan and they forgot it on overnight. I don't think so. I don't <laughs> think so because. Python, the terminology is from uh-huh. Chinese. That's true. That's these true. white, these white soups are actually yeah. from Southern China. Like mm-hmm. they exist in Southern China. And so a lot of, so ramen inherently is from China. It's yep. these meat soups, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of cross-cultural communication from China to Japan in terms of showing how to make soup out of animals. So mm-hmm. I don't know the specific history of tonkotsu on its own, but I know that there has been a ton of communication between the two countries on yeah. how to make soup and expats making soup in Japan is like a, a not a rare thing at all. So yeah. I would be super surprised if that myth is actually true. <laughs> like, are you saying that even though China was doing this forever and taught yeah, yeah. Japan how to make miso and soy <laughs> sauce and all of these fermented things and uh, also how to make clear soups that they didn't teach 
cloudy soups. Yeah, yeah, very, yeah. Japanese very acc- accidentally yeah. invented it, you know? Accidentally invented this thing yeah. that also exists in tons of other countries. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry to get you off topic. I mean, I just had to ask that question because I, oh, read, it, I read it all over. You know? Yeah. The history is fascinating. You know, it's like, and I think broadly humans, and I don't just mean Americans, but mm-hmm. humans love narratives that kind of are serendipitous, but also like, so I think that's why the miso one is so fun because it's yeah. also serendipitous. But that's we also how we made penicillin. You know, yeah, you know, like how that, we made yeah. how do we discover how do we discover MSG? Oh, randomly yeah. the guys at Ajinomoto they he was just looking into kombu and found it. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah. we love serendipity yeah. and like accidental intense discovery. But mm-hmm. sometimes it's just like it was taught. Yeah, and maybe that's how it was discovered in China. I, I don't know. I don't. Uh, I don't know how a lot of this stuff happens. There's always more to learn. Let's talk about. Um, American restaurants, American ramen restaurants using pre-made soup stocks because this was something completely that I didn't know because I haven't yeah. been making ramen for that long of the time. Sure. Maybe like a year and a half, two years. I've been really trying to give it a go. And um, everybody is telling me now that most of these restaurants in America that serve tonkotsu ramen or ramen in general are using these pre-made prefabricated not prefabricated pre-made soup stocks that are just prefabricated yeah yeah. i mean it's complex i'll just we'll start there i think it's hard to identify which restaurants do and which restaurants don't because the actual methodology is complicated so first of all no restaurant will ever admit it to you even if they do it right like they're going to use soup base and they're not going to tell you. Uh-huh. But a lot of these restaurants, what they'll do is they'll take a starting soup base and they'll add components to it to amp it up or mm-hmm. to modify it, to mask the fact that it's just a soup base. So like, and I've seen manufacturers suggest this, right? It's like, here, take our Python base, add chicken bones to it and cook it two hours and it will be even richer. It'll be even more luscious and vibrant, uh-huh. more chickeny. So it becomes harder and harder to identify who's using it, who's not. And I don't know the statistics on who does and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. Like we can, I was just at a restaurant two days ago and like walked in the kitchen and I swore that they were using base and they don't yeah. use any base at all. So oh, really, like it's really difficult to tell. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's really difficult to tell. And additionally, a lot of chains now, this is common in Japan, they'll have a commissary kitchen where they make the base soup and then they'll distribute to all the different restaurants. Yeah, so yeah. then it's like, who's, who's making, who's using the base? It's really hard to tell. What I will say is that if you go to a restaurant and they serve sushi and ramen, (laughs) there's just like no way. Like ramen takes up a lot of space to make in a Uh small kitchen if you're doing a lot of different types. So if you've got five different types, that restaurant either has to be huge, right? It's got to be a massive restaurant or they're probably using soup base. Mm -hmm. It's it's kind of stuff like that that you have to think about. So the challenge is that it's like, it's kind of hard to tell. Like the the pre-made stuff is not bad quality. Like it's pretty good. I mean, you know, you ever have the sun noodle kits with like the pre-made yeah, yeah. tare? It's not bad. It's like, not bad. Is it? It's not like unique. It's not like distinctly. Uh, it's not distinctly that person's expression of ramen, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's not bad tasting. So, I think that's why people can get away with it because you can like. It's hard to tell. It's hard to tell that you're using a base or not. And I actually got asked. I was doing a class in Nashville on ramen with the guys at 210 Jack Green Pheasant. And they hate the stuff, right? They make everything from scratch and they uh-huh. hate the stuff. They feel like it dilutes the brand of ramen. And I don't think it does, but somebody asked in the audience, like, how do you tell if somebody's using a base or not? Uh-huh. And I don't think I have a good answer. I think the answer is just like you get clues. 
you know, do they have 15 different soups on the menu? There's no way, right? Yeah. Like you just can't, you're, it takes so long. It's like, you don't have the room to make all the soups. Um, you know, how big is the restaurant? If the restaurant's really big. Maybe at the bigger kitchen, they can accommodate those kinds mm -hmm. of things, but a small kitchen, absolutely no way. Right. Yeah. And then, so it's just like, you can just get clues. And I think once you eat more real ramen, you start to notice like, wow, this is like really intensely watery or like this doesn't have the body that I would expect from uh -huh. a soup, like a tonkotsu. Those are the things you can get. But the reality is like, sometimes you just can't tell. That's the <laughs> is problem. It, is it a pretty widespread uh, practice in Japan too for like smaller restaurants to offer ramen? That's, that's what I've heard. I mean, again, I don't know the statistics on it, but what I've heard is that the vast majority of ramen shops use base okay. uh, or start with a base. I mean, I know crazy famous shops that like, you, I, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news <laughs> for the shops, but like uh, these are legendary shops that use base. Oh, they man. throw base into the soup, even, right? Yeah. Like, it's part of the component. And if it's not even just like pure base, it's like there are manufacturers who make flavor enhancer basis that you can add to your soup to make it taste more chickeny or make it taste more porky. So it's super common. And I think part of that's just because ramen is a cheap food. Like you don't have the, you don't have the means to do everything from scratch. This whole idea of kodowari or like focus, attention to detail, fixation is recent phenomenon, like maybe no more than 30 years old. So prior to that, you know, it's just junk food. It's just like food huh. that like gets you going and gets you on about your day. So it's not surprising that a lot of these shortcuts exist because they reduce costs. They make it, you can pass those savings on to a customer. Mm -hmm. But does that, but like now we're, we're not talking about the past anymore. We're <laughs> yeah, talking yeah. about modern day ramen. And like, it, I sit in a place where I want to make everything because uh -huh. ramen is more than just a comforting, tasty thing. It's like a reflection of my, my taste as a person who makes ramen. It's mm -hmm. a reflection of what I love, and what I look for in a dish. So to only get that, the only way to get that is to make everything, you know, mm -hmm. it's to do it. And I think that's where modern chefs are, but they're not the only ones. And so they can coexist with other places that are just like diners who serve soup noodles. Like it, you can have both is what I'm saying, but they are different. That's mm -hmm. the key. Oh, yeah. So much to think about. It's, it's, it's just been fascinating for me just because like, like I said, I haven't been doing this for so long, but there's people like you and Keizo and he's been doing this for a decade, you know, like a decade now. And I just, I always find it so fascinating to think about like where it's going. I, I think about American sushi a lot too, you know, because sushi yeah. for a long time was, you had California roll, Philly roll, <laughs> you know, you had these kind of you things. Yeah, your dragon roll with dragon roll. mayonnaise <laughs> is on the plate, yeah. But, but, you know, we had, you know, that Jito Dreams of Sushi movie comes out and all of a sudden people want to eat you know, nigiri, sushi, and like this more authentic Japanese style thing. So I'm always curious if there's ever going to be anything like that for ramen where. Well, you know, that Ramen Heads movie came out and similarly people were like, oh, skimen, tonkotsu gyokai, interesting. Uh -huh. What is this? You know, I think it's just, you just have to show people that these things exist and get uh -huh. people to try it and then they'll be addicted because yeah. it is good, right? Yeah. Like we're all, we're all hinging on this component that, oh, this style of ramen is tasty. Sorry about that. Oh. I forgot to turn on my phone. Good. Better edit that out. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no edits, no cuts. No cuts, zero cuts. <laughs> no um, cuts. Yeah, it's just the reality of it is that much like any food in the United States or elsewhere, there's going to be a continuum of like dirt cheap, not thoughtful, simple, but cheap, easy, all the way to like expensive, bougie, high-end upscale. 
the challenge with ramen is just that no one wants to pay the money required for the super upscale, uh-huh. you know, and they expect it to be more at the lower end. So how do you balance it? That's yeah. The, yeah. The yeah. It's hard to like, cause it, like you said, it was a post-war food to feed a starving nation that was yeah. eventually turned into this thing that we have now. So how do you make it? So, because I guess sushi might've been similar, but yeah, it is much different. Yeah, but like Edomai style sushi is one example uh-huh, of uh-huh. all the different types of sushi that exist. And they yeah. can coexist, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, sure. can love a, I can love an omakase meal that's uh-huh. $220 and also love dirty $2 piece <laughs> sushi, kai, you know, kaiten sushi on the conveyor sushi. belt. Yeah. I love both. You know, yep. They're both good. Yeah, for sure, for sure. All right. I, I'm, I don't really don't have any other things I wanted to talk about. For the interview section, so, so maybe we can get into the Q and A. And there's actually somebody sure. building a wall next to me, so it's that's fine. fine. I don't know if you guys can hear the ambulances going back <laughs> outside. So, like, okay, all right. So let's 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 cut this one here, and then we'll go continue in part two in the next part um, for the Q and A. All right, sounds good. All right. So- so that was part one of the interview with Mike Satinover. I think I might have called him Mike Satinover in the past. I'm very sorry about that, Mike. But as you heard, we're going to do a second part of this interview where he's going to do an hour of Q&A of questions submitted from you guys on Instagram. So if you would like to submit questions for future guests, please give me a follow on Instagram at Way of Ramen. And please give Mike a follow on Instagram at Ramenover on Instagram. It's fantastic stuff. He's posting there all the time. So... All right, see you guys all in the next episode. One hour of Q&A with Mike Satinover, a.k.a. Ramen Lord.